Right. So Neil, I feel like I've known you for quite a while, even though this is the first time we've met. I've been watching you closely on Instagram and Twitter. And um, you're very different from most doctors. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just fascinated about how you've come to where you are now in your career and why you think the way you do. And for the listeners out there, they'll be a bit confused because you've got an English accent, but you're an MD. And an MD, I believe, in the States stands for medical doctor. Correct, yes. And I think um, the, re the reason why they make that distinction MD is because everybody and their dog appears to be a doctor in the States. <laughs> doctors of physiotherapy, doctors of osteopathy, doc God knows doctors of everything. It's funny, I used to, I used to look, and, you know, doctors of podiatry. And there used, used to be a time when I used to think, oh, what is wrong with these people there? You know, doctor, this is our title. How dare they use our title? Um, I'm at that point now where I'm kind of embarrassed to be an MD. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't, I don't know if this is a good thing anymore. Um, but anyway, enough of me chatting. You're here now. And um, tell me about yourself, please. I'm fascinated to hear about your your journey for life and and why you have certain views, which I'm sure you'll ex expand upon. Yeah, well, Ahmed, it is an absolute pleasure to join you and write back to you. I have enjoyed following you online, and it's so interesting when you form relationships with people online and you get to interact and then you finally meet in person, and we're getting to do that for the first time, which is fantastic. And as you've alluded to, it's been quite a journey. <laughs> And uh, I grew up in, in England, southeast of England, went to medical school, Cardiff University, so a couple of hours out west. And then I worked in the National Health Service for probably about uh, a year before moving to the United States. I actually knew for some time that I wanted to train in the US. So I did my licensing exams while I was still in medical school, which, by the way, I would advise anyone who is considering going to the States as a great strategy because you're learning the same same things. You did your exam too? <laughs> USMLEs? I did my... Oh, fantastic. Okay. I've been to the States and I was like, I love it and I want to be a doctor here. So I, I sat my USMLEs. I even went out and did the clinical. I think it's part three or something. Yes. Um, But I don't know. I I then thought, no, I love it here. And, and it's kind of... It's a very different system out there. And I don't know, I, I aborted, but I agree. The exam process really helped me. Yes. Um. So, yeah. And I'm interested to know why after a year, what what is it about the, the US that attracted you? Yeah, well, aside from a few subtle differences in, in practicing and education, I mean, the, the content of those exams is still the same. And I have to say, I had also visited the United States many times Um from 18 to my early 20s. And I thought that this would be a really good place to to learn medicine. And I have to say, right up until that last moment where I actually applied and decided to, to go over there, it was still up in the air. I wasn't sure whether I was actually going to go ahead and do that. I applied to a few different places across the country, ended up being accepted to a residency program in Baltimore. So I did my internal medicine residency training. The training is very different from here. The The hours are, are longer. It's much more intense and, and focused. And I, I have to say, I, I do think um, the United States, the way they train after graduating medical school, I feel it's much more organized than over here. You know what track you're on and you know what happens when you finish. So those three years really went by in a flash. 
And afterwards, I was debating what I should do. Should I come back to the UK or stay in the US? And at the time in internal medicine in the US, it was really, it was really partitioning off for those people who don't understand how it works. Typically, a general internal medicine physician will either work as an outpatient doctor, so similar to a GP, or they will work in a hospital. That's as things stand now. But at the time before when I was training, the internal medicine doctor would do both. They would see their own patients and they would round on them in the hospital. Then that became split in two. So you either worked as an outpatient or in the hospital. And the uh, type of job where you get to work in the hospital, it's known as a hospitalist. That was really taking off when I graduated from residency and they have a very flexible schedule. It allows you to travel and do other things. You kind of do almost like shift work. I'm not a fan of the word shift in medicine. That's what they allowed. Aside from that, the U.S. makes it very difficult for anyone who's trained overseas to practice in their country. So basically, other countries reciprocate that. So I found out that if I wanted to come back to the U.K., I was going to have to do extra rotations and extra exams. I couldn't practice at the same level. That's when I decided, okay, well, let me work as an internal medicine doctor, acute care in the hospital. I can travel, do other things, follow other passions at the same time. And that was a few years ago now. I carried on down that route. I've done many other things as we'll touch upon. My main passion is lifestyle medicine and metabolic health. But that was my initial journey towards practicing in the United States. It's quite a competitive um, field, medicine, getting in, getting your residency. I think it's just exams and hurdles and resumes and research. And it's, it's quite difficult, isn't it, when you're in the system to see anything else? Exactly. It's all Correct. consuming. It's your career and climbing up that ladder and I think it's only once I got to the top of the ladder I could actually see things clearly yeah um and it kind of for me it was um quite an eye-opening experience um particularly my own journey after I became a consultant to actually figure out what it actually meant to be healthy mm. um so yep. tell me so you've become an internal medicine doctor you're pra are you practicing in a hospital or are you working for yourself in a practice private practice clinic um what's the setup so currently i am yes i'm working in hospitals i contract out with a few different hospitals kind of i'm in a position where i can make my own schedule doing that but my main passion which i found out only a couple of years after working in hospital medicine is um, lifestyle medicine metabolic health and preventive care because I realized very fast, and I think a lot of doctors have this realization and are not quite sure what to do about it, and that is that so much of what you see is preventable and are caused by the demons in modern-day lifestyle. So exp expand on that. So tell me what you mean. So basically, we have an explosion, particularly over the last 20 years, of chronic diseases. Type 2 diabetes, heart disease, many other inflammatory diseases caused predominantly by our lifestyles. And I'm sad to say, I mean, I, I'm a U.S. citizen now. I, I love the United States. I think the United States has many good things going from it. But for, what, for all of those things, one devilish thing that the United States has given to the world is the Western lifestyle, predominantly the standard American diet, which is high in ultra-processed foods, high in added sugars, artificial sugars, um, seed oils, other inflammatory substances. And this is driving so much of the chronic disease that we are seeing. So what, does that, that actually, what does that actually look like, a standard American? Because I hear this. 
What does that actually mean? And uh, from a day-to-day point of view, what is a standard American <laughs> diet? So it is a diet which is basically unnatural. Um, this diet has exploded over the last 50 years or so. I mean, 50, 60 years ago, Americans used to eat what a lot of the rest of the world used to eat. So food which is very close to its source. So you get vegetables, fruits, dairy, meat directly from the source. You don't process them. It doesn't go through any factory, artificial, man-made process. The standard American diet now is considered a diet which is high in ultra-processed factory-made foods. Shockingly, statistics now show that 70% of the total calorie intake in the United States is ultra-processed foods. Wow. And this is driving an explosion in diseases, and almost zero thought is going into this. And it is for a variety of reasons, including the fact that the whole system, the establishment, profits of people being sick, particularly in the United States, when you next go there, you probably experience this. Turn on the TV. Every other commercial is a drug ad. And most of the pharmaceutical products now are designed to sort of put a lid on the chronic issues that are caused by a poor lifestyle. But very few people are getting into, well, why do we have all of these conditions which are at unprecedented levels, not just in adults, but but tragically children as well. And I would say the number one driver is the poor diet. You can get into other factors like lack of exercise, etc. But by far, the biggest factor is the poor diet. So I really focus my practice on raising awareness of this and helping patients to get away, <coughs> excuse me, from the standard American diet. Yeah, it's um, I, I, it's a very similar problem, I think, in the UK. The UK, I think, is very much like the 51st state. We're yeah, the little brother much. to the yeah. US. And I've got family in the US. I've been out there quite a lot. And um, obesity is a rampant problem. Almost yeah. every second person you see is not just a little bit obese, but morbidly obese. And um, it's just sad to see that that's almost normalized now. And if you actually say anything about obesity, it's fat shaming and how dare you. And it's acceptable to be fat and it's beautiful to be fat. But <laughs> to me, I think the problem is, it, okay, it, yes, everyone is beautiful. I believe in that. But, you know, um, it's not healthy. And you can't say that's healthy. Um, but what about the 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 colleges, your your medical boards, your, you know, the, the people, that, the departments of health, you know, the Fauci, you know, looks after this National Institute of Health. Why, why are they not raising this issue, do you think? Well, you've touched upon a couple of very important issues there. And I feel that um, not only are they not addressing this issue, but I feel they're actively promoting this culture. This culture of thinking that fat shaming is bad. And of course, at its extremes, it is bad if you think of it as shaming someone, making them feel bad. But it is being accompanied now by a very sinister movement, which is almost celebrating obesity. I can show you magazine covers now, which are uh, featuring obese people and saying, this is healthy, I am healthy, but you're not healthy. I'm looking at it from a medical standpoint. There's a movement in the United States now not to weigh people during clinics because it might offend them and hurt them. I mean, what on earth comes next, Ahmed? Are we going to say, well, I'm not going to check your blood sugar because the result might offend you. And this is the complete clownery, which is coming from the top of the US. And and my own belief is that it's much more sinister than just missing it or thinking, well, no, let's, we're doctors, we focus on medicines. No, there is a huge industry driving it. The obesity industry is massive. 
Um, huge swathes of the establishment are profiting from people being sick, so they don't want to address it. Big pharmaceutical companies, surgeons even, bariatric surgery, 25000 to 40000 a pop in the United States to do bariatric surgery. So you have all of these players that are benefiting from society getting sicker and sicker, and in a very cruel way, they are not telling people that are getting sick. When, when I personally look at an obese person... I am looking at it from a medical standpoint, thinking, well, I know the chances are if I check your blood blood tests right now that you have several blood tests that are completely off, whether that is your blood sugar, your A1C, your HOMA IR, your lipid panel. I can do other tests on you to prove that you have poor metabolic health. And we have this body that I consider a gift from God, whether you believe in God, whether you believe in nature, your body is a gift. We owe it to ourselves to treat it well. And when we have an establishment, a medical establishment that is refusing to address this very basic issue that drives society's health, ultimately, I believe it's going to bring the country down through a variety of mechanisms, whether that's increased healthcare costs, whether that is um, taxes going up to support all of them, lost productivity, etc. But it is a very sinister thing to have this problem, which is exploding, unprecedented level. Like you've, you've alluded to the United States. Now, I've had this conversation. I've been back in England here for the last few days. Obesity has exploded here as well. Now, it's not at the same levels as the US, but it's getting there. It's getting there fast. And it primarily comes from a poor food environment. And we are allowing these food corporations to make addictive, hyper palatable food, trillion dollar industry. People don't have any choice. They have to eat. People are profiting off this sickness. And it is going to reach a breaking point eventually. But there are going to be a lot of tragic things happening before we get to that point. So my whole mission is to really focus on this issue and say it's not acceptable to ignore it. It's definitely not acceptable to celebrate it. We have to get onto it. Yes, you can deal with it in an empathetic, compassionate way. But you tell me this, if people didn't want to lose weight, why are these anti-obesity drugs so popular? Everybody knows they want to try to be thinner, try to be in the best possible shape, but a lot of people are stuck and affordability of food is a big issue as well. And ultimately, the government will play a role in improving the situation. Whoa, where do I begin there? <laughs> Let's discuss. <laughs> this is the future of Western civilization at it, stake here. Nothing comes before your health. Nothing. I think, I think you've just nailed it. It is actually about our civilization. I'm, I'm a little bit further down the road, I think, from you and the, the rabbit run or whatever it's called. I, I think the fall has already started. I think the West has fallen and um, it's really sad to witness it. It's kind of incredible, but um, you're absolutely right. I, I I will look around and even recently we went to Cornwall and we went to a seaside town, village, and my children are looking around and they say, Daddy, why, why are all the other daddies looking like they have babies? <laughs> they all look like they have a baby. And they did. These young men... With big beach ball bellies. Remember, men can get pregnant now. Don't forget that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's another topic, but let's stay on topic. Yeah, I forgot. They might I, be. You I never forgot. know. I forgot. Yeah, men men can get pregnant. But they <laughs> certainly look like yeah. they're getting pregnant. Yeah. But it's it's normalized to the point where even my little children, who don't, we don't talk about this kind of stuff, you know, and they're saying, Daddy, why do, why do the other dads look like this and you don't? And I have to talk to them about food and diet and explain it to them. And I think it's really sad that... People don't value their body. You just said it's God-given or nature-given. 
I always say to people, what's the most prized possession that you have? Is it your, you know, designer watch? Is it your car? Is it your, what, what is it? And it's none of those. It's actually your body. This incredible machine, this miracle. And I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I, I, I believe in God or a creator. Or we're connected to the world, you know, and what we have is unique. It's an amazing thing we have. Exactly. So why would you not take care of it? Why would you not fuel it properly? And the food isn't even just a food source for energy. It forms our constituent parts. We are made of what we put in our mouth. And I think this is the thing that people are missing nowadays. And the fact that the medical profession isn't raising this or talking about this and the solution just seems to be a tablet or a syringe, a vial, um, and not something that actually, on the whole, doesn't cost anything. And I know there's cost issues, and you talk, you've alluded to, you know, healthy living can be more expensive. I would argue that actually being sick is one of the biggest reasons for being bankrupt in the States. In the States, definitely. And getting into yeah. debt and having financial problems. So in the long run, if you really want to save your money, you want to be healthy. And that comes down to choices again. Now, you talked about big food. The, do you want to talk about that in a little bit more detail? What is it they're doing to our food that is so bad for us? Yeah, well, great points there as well, Ahmed. I mean, you touched upon something there, which I like to always stress. Anybody listening, every single cell in your body Every single thought that you have is powered by what you eat. Every single one. Junk in, junk out. And people don't draw the link. Everybody knows, okay, it can affect my physical health, but it also affects your mental health. There are tremendous studies out there that show that you can reverse a lot of mental health conditions with the right eating. So that, I believe, should be the first question. I mean, this is basic stuff, Ahmed, that we've forgotten. Um, I know we've gone extra crazy over the last three years, which we'll get to. But for me, I'm a, a great study. I, I love studying the, the history of medicine and you go back to Hippocrates and you read his quotes. He knew that what you eat is the basic fundamental of your health. And I believe it should be the very first question for most issues. I mean, you deal a lot with broken bones and, and maybe it's different in some situations acutely. But for me, if anybody comes to you with a chronic sounding symptom, you, the first question should be, what are you eating? What are you eating? Because that's going to determine everything. How many doctors do that? Zero. Because the Western model of medicine doesn't teach that. Now, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's many good things. I'm glad I practice in 2023 and not 1823. We have some great things, but we have swung the pendulum so far the other way where we have forgotten the basic fundamentals. And as for your question regarding food, there are a whole host of reasons that I could talk for hours for on how we've come to this point, the corruption involved by the sugar industry, what happened in the 1950s and 60s. What did happen? Tell me. So basically, um, you go back 100, 110 years, uh, people all over the Western world used to eat very purely. They used to eat real food. Um, they used to have moderate portions. And then what happened was a, a series of, of different uh, philosophies that took hold and movements within medicine, within the field of nutrition. The first one was um, back at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. 
you had a big movement in the United States, which started with something called the Flexner Report, which basically wanted to to Sorry, toss the flex the Flexner Report. Flexer. Flexner. Flexner. Flexner Report. Report. Um, which was commissioned and basically said that medical education had to be standardized across the United States. And basically this led to a lot of very traditional ways of practicing medicine being outlawed. Those types of doctors were labeled quacks and uh, Rockefeller was involved in this as well. And the whole philosophy was, well, let's um, let's industrialize the pharmaceutical industry. Let's have a pill for every ill. Rockefeller was an oil magnet. Initially, yeah. Oil. He was involved in different industries as well. But then he got he saw what a huge potential moneymaker the pharmaceutical industry was. So he um, basically led the whole of the U.S. government and the medical institutions to say, well, no, our mechanism should be standardized education. Okay, some of it probably needed to be standardized in, in medicine, but let's have a pill for every ill and let's promote pharmaceutical products instead. Didn't he fund like the American Medical Association or the medical universities themselves? There, there were some links with them. that initially. Yes, correct. There were. Um, so that set in in motion a, a chain of events that led the pharmaceutical industry to to have the the power that that it now does, and then in the mid part of the last century, what happened was there was um, a lot of um, debate over what caused heart disease. President Eisenhower in the U.S. had a heart attack. What's fascinating? What, what's so important? Because I know we've got a lot of listeners in England in in the U.K. So. You don't understand, I believe, how much what happens in the U.S. quickly filters over here um, through certain mechanisms, primarily involving corporate interests. So basically, in the United States, the mid part of the last century, there was huge debate. Well, what is causing heart attacks? And uh, the sugar industry was involved in basically paying off some Harvard scientists to say that um, sugars are not to blame. For, for heart issues and other medical problems. Uh, let's put the blame on the fat, saturated fat industry. And you had other organizations, the American Heart Association, so on, Crisco, all, all of these players. But essentially... Crisco? Crisco was an initial um, type of uh, vegetable oil which was promoted. And we probably grew up at a similar time where margarine was promoted as healthy over butter. But it all started with what happened in the United States. We know, now know that this, was, this is complete junk. Many people have probably been harmed by this. And we all grew up thinking margarine, polyunsaturated fats, industrially produced is good. That was all because it was helping these food corporations make money from artificial products. So... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a it. great topic. You've yeah. nailed it. So basically, yeah. I remember going up in the 80s in Glasgow. Yeah. And my parents were young immigrants at the time. And we used to have ghee. And yes. they'd be making parata with ghee. Oof, and it was delicious and <laughs> yeah. ghee and curries and whatnot. And then suddenly that went away. And there's a vegetable oil bottle. Yeah. And that, um, and the butter was suddenly replaced with a tub of margarine. Yes. And they were just like anyone else, young couple watching TV, influenced by what they were seeing yes. and told this is healthy. And that's what they started consuming. And I'd say for 30, 40 years, that's what they took. And it's only recently my mum's gone back to ghee, has ditched the, um, the vegetable oils and has told me this is all rubbish. And <laughs> it's gone back to butter. Um, and that's how powerful this influence had been that, you know, people had forgotten what it meant to eat well and started picking up what were essentially fads 
and what was told to them was being healthy. But going back to Crisco, I mean, these vegetable oils, it's, I've always wondered, how do you get oil out of a little tiny grain of seed? And I've looked into it. It's such a heavily industrialized, processed, high heat treatment. You use crude oil, benzenes, deodorants, gumming agents or whatever it's called. And it, it's, it's horrendous. And we're putting this, this stuff that... I think 150 years ago, it didn't exist in the it human diet. It was used industry. Yeah. yeah, it was industrial yeah. lubricants. Yeah. And they marketed it as an alternative to butter and lard because it didn't go off. It didn't go rancid. You could put it in a tin and it would last three years and it would cost a fraction to produce. Um, and we were sold this as food. Exactly. I, and if you look at every packet or jar, it will say rapeseed oil, vegetable oil, um, sunflower oil, and this is all in our food. How do you avoid it? It's everywhere. Restaurants. I mean, what what do we do? It, it's horrendous. And however bad you think it is in the UK, multiply that tenfold for how bad things are in the US. But don't you find it um, just absolutely unacceptable and tragic, Ahmed, that we grew up at that time. And the same thing has happened in our house where we grew up, like, over the last couple of years, we've gone back to my parents will use butter, ghee now, and we've had a complete reversal. But think how many people were potentially harmed during that time with industrially produced seed oils. And it's not a, um, we call it, I call it a seed oil. We call it, we call it a vegetable oil traditionally, but vegetables don't produce oil. <laughs> this is also a marketing ploy to make people think it's healthy. But men, but men is, can lactate now. So exactly. Vegetables can. Yeah, produce. vegetables produce oil. No vegetable produces oil as from, well, maybe a, small number, but um, the, the ones that we think of as vegetable oils are, are seed oils, and they're totally unnatural. And the reason why we grew up with margarine in our fridges all started with corruption in the United States. This is why we have to have our guard up, because these same things are happening over and over again, and we're being harmed for profit. So what is actually bad about these vegetables i mean some people might say to you oh but it's great for cooking it has no taste or flavor it's a high burning smoke factor whatever it is so it's great all these chefs and yep. michelin star restaurants are using vegetable seed oils so you know is there anything bad about it i mean what's what's medically bad and unhealthy if you can explain on that yeah this is an important point which i i, I want all of our viewers to to take in and I'm a, a great believer in first principles when it comes to principles of medicine and science. At the end of the day, our bodies are the same as cavemen bodies. We haven't changed and we are built to consume certain foods. And the simple rule of thumb is anything which is made by man, our bodies are very likely to react badly to because we're not built to consume those foods. We are not built to consume foods which are made in factories, foods with additives, foods which are highly processed. And it gets back to your question about, well, what is what should people be eating? Um, I call what people should be eating real food, which is very similar to what our grandparents and great-grandparents ate. And it is absolutely tragic that if we were to go back in time, and I would say 98% of the population, let me do your blood test right now. I'll look at a whole host of parameters, your blood sugars, A1C, cholesterol. If I go back in time and do that to your grandparents and great-grandparents, they would have had much better levels than you at your age. Think about the tragedy of that with all of the technological advances that we've had, and we end up so unhealthy. And the bottom line is, it is because we are consuming these foods which we are not built for. So if you want to know what to be consuming, 
have to go as natural as possible. Nowadays, it's very difficult because we have so many pesticides, fertilizers used. I know organic food is expensive, but that's what you really want to go for. Food which is as natural as possible. We were talking earlier about having chickens and letting chickens lay eggs. I know practically not everybody can do that, but this is the principle that everybody has to keep in mind. The more you consume God's food, nature's food, as natural as possible, and there's so many fantastic ways you can cook it, that you can spice things up, and we we both come from a South Asian background, so many delicious ways to cook. But remember this, if you are even remotely inclined to have a dislike of the establishment, which I know a lot of listeners to this particular podcast probably are, if you hate the thought of Big Pharma making a ton of money, of those executives sitting there smiling as the money pours in, you remember that every time you eat your next processed food that you are going on that conveyor belt that the establishment wants you on, consuming this rubbish, helping food companies make vast profits, and they know what they're doing. These are hyperpalatable foods. Of course, they're delicious because they've been chemically made that way to make people addicted to them. You can't stop, whereas you don't have that same drive, that same desire for real foods. So if you hate the establishment, you hate the thought that Big Pharma are making a ton of money, remember that next time that bad food is put in front of you and just try your best. It may take time, but keep in mind, I mean, I'll give you one example from my own life. I I have been into health and wellness for, for some time, but it's really only over the last three or four years that I really learned the dangers of ultra-processed foods. So I used to eat, maybe I'm not a big breakfast person, maybe I would eat a cereal bar around 10 thinking oh it's got high fiber on it it's got low sugar whatever but it's still processed it's still got seed oils in it so now i will just have a bag of nuts and maybe some blueberries or grapes i'm eating naturally but i don't want that rubbish out of a packet i'm not going to be part of that system and i'll do my very best there are no guarantees with health and wellness of course a lot of luck comes into it but i can only do my best and i know that physically and mentally i'm in better health for avoiding foods which I know have been made by man and are generating vast profits. Uh, I, I think um, I, I completely agree with that. I actually had a very similar journey. It's about four or five years that I've turned things around. If you saw me 2016, I was very different. I was 16 kilograms heavier. Wow. I was type 2 diabetic, hypertensive. Oh you know, very different from well, the person. what the establishment sets people up for. And yeah, absolutely. And you're just thinking, I, you know, I was a consultant. I've gone through medicine and I'm telling people how to be fit and healthy. And I was not a model of health. And it was only my dad's um, terminal cancer that essentially woke me up. And my wife and I then went on a journey of discovery to find out what it actually meant to be healthy. And it's funny, you think you're healthy. You think you're eating food that's good for you you think you're doing the right things and you're exercising and you just can't lose the weight and you just feel rubbish and you feel sluggish and you, it, it's just not clear what are you doing wrong and I think there'll be a lot of people out there who'll be thinking I go to the gym I go in the treadmill I exercise I just can't lose weight I can't get fit what is it and I think it's because we are in a fog a fog of war we've been blinded to the truth exactly and and people need to realize and actually on my pinned tweet i've written my simple guide to good health and it really is simple um but it takes a little bit of discipline and um i think that's the key thing and a bit of personal responsibility but we've again personal responsibility is kind of being drummed out of us 
in school, in life. Exactly. You know, abdicate all your decision making to other external forces that have no interest in your health, that just want to profit from your sickness. And we need to wake up to that because if we don't, things are only just going to go from really bad to really, really, really bad. And and that's, I think that's why I've actually put this podcast together. I want people to wake up and get fit and healthy. And you've alluded to, you know, if you if you want to put your stick your fingers up to authority, you know, the best way to do that be healthy. Yeah, don't be, need them. Is be healthy. Yeah. And you know, I've looked into things not just the sea dolls, but the sugar industry. So it all comes from corn. So there's a huge corn industry in the states, and they use glucose corn syrup, glucose Terrible. inverted syrup, which actually comes from the corn. It's a very cheap source. And I'm not sure if you know the background, but I believe the sugar is actually worse for you than, say, for example, organic cane sugar or natural sugars. Um, have you looked into that? Yeah, so uh, you have different schools of thought on this. I mean, sugar for me is out or refined carbohydrates, uh, the number one reason for our current situation. I mean, lots of factors involved, but that for me is the number one reason why we have a lot of the chronic illness that we have. The consumption of sugar has gone up tremendously i think the last statistic i saw over 80 grams of sugar per day for the average american wow it's added to, to everything over there and i'm, I'm so happy ahmed and I, I would encourage anyone listening to to follow ahmed as well online as i do i mean fantastic health tweets and nothing is better than the hero's journey and somebody who's been through that themselves who have reversed their own health conditions it's a very compelling story so so congratulations on that uh, avoiding going down this path but I always tell people that um, if you're in a Western country right now, especially a country like the US or UK, it's almost impossible not to reach your 30s, 40s and 50s and not have health issues. The whole system is setting you up for that. So there is no way that you can eat what I call, again, a standard American diet and be healthy. You have to separate yourself from that and you have to realize the damage it's doing to you, like smoking or anything else bad. You will end up sick. If you go down that route and I'm also a big exerciser, I go to gym every single day and I feel very bad because I'll look around me and I'll hear conversations and I'll see people who are just completely out of shape at the gym and it, it, they're not changing over months and months. And obviously, you know, I'm thinking my thoughts, I wouldn't say it to them, but I know the reason why, because the truth is, although exercise is magnificent, and I would always advocate it, in terms of your body shape and health, it's probably only 20% at the most, 80% is your diet, you cannot outrun a bad diet. So people eat complete rubbish. Uh, my gym is obviously in the United States, and I know what they're doing all day, I even see them, I see them go to the gym and then get a high sugar milkshake afterwards. And what, what are you doing? This is not going to work out for you. You certainly exercise are doing you some good, but in the end, you're not going to change your body shape as fast as you want. And you're still going to have the health problems because you're, you don't realize that the food is the key part. Exactly. I've got a friend who's an orthopedic surgeon who goes to the gym every day, runs hard on the treadmill, does, does his weights, but then on his way home, goes to McDonald's and picks up a drive through. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? Why? Why would yeah. you do this to yourself? Um, and I, I also see a lot of my patients who tell me they're, they're not, they've put on weight because they can't exercise. And I think controlling your weight through exercise is not sustainable in the long term. And actually, for weight control, if that's important, and I think it should be, um, because ultimately, um, adipose tissue around the circumference of your waist is a very poor prognostic factor, as you know, 
for chronic health illness, it's, an, it's, it's a sign of insulin resistance, exactly, which, which again leads to stroke, heart disease, um, cancer risks, um, reduces your immune system. So you don't want belly fat. You want a slim waistline. That's probably one of the best indicators of longevity and he- good health. So, um, you know, if you want to reduce your weight, you, you shouldn't really be focusing on just exercise. It's actually your sleep optimization. It's stress levels. It's your diet, your nutrition, your eating window. Now, back to sugar, um, it's extremely addictive. Uh, I have to admit, I, I used to always tell people, oh, I've got a sweet tooth, I've got a sweet tooth. Um, and I never thought I would get rid of a sweet tooth. But I have. Um, I think through intermittent fasting, I've reversed my insulin resistance. Excellent. And I don't have the sugar highs and the sugar dips, and I don't fluctuate and um, anybody who knows about intermittent fasting will know you you metabolize through ketones. And I, I'm very much more steady now. I'm very more focused. I've got a lot more energy. I've just done a 10K run before you came. Um, it was fasted. People always say you need to carb up to exercise and load up and get your energy. You don't. It, you don't. It's absolute nonsense. I was flying. It was a great 10K run. Um, and I still am not hungry, um, despite my stomach rumbling. <laughs> so... Yeah, I don't think exercise should be the the way to control your weight. There are other multiple factors. But the problem is, like you said, it's all about hyperpalatable processed food. Sugar is addictive. It is something you will crave and it's stuffed into your food. And I think the key thing is going back to basics. If you cook your food, you know what's in it. You're not going to make a lasagna with sugar in it or have pasta sauce with sugar in it. Why would you do that? But this is what these processed companies are doing. I've just... I don't know about you, but in the supermarket, I stay away from the middle aisles. <laughs> I skirt around. Put it, yeah, yeah. I just, I just get the fruit and veg, um, the milk, the butter, and nuts, and that's it. I actually get all my meat now from a regenerative farmer locally, just a couple of miles away. But even the supermarket, I'm going away from that. I had a podcast with a lady who's um, into community food sourcing from local growers directly so taking out the middleman the supermarket way to do it yeah yeah and you and we know now all this stuff has got no gmos in it there's no pesticides insecticides and the worry for me is now they're talking about putting in the mrna jabs into our food sources you know so you want to be very clear about where is your food coming from and how was it grown was it holistically farmed um so i think our trips to the supermarket are going to become even less frequent than they already are. I mean, is there anything else you would advise people in terms of health? Um, take, for example, you know, there's there's so much big pharma um, noise coming out about statins, about vaccines and childhood vaccine schedule. I mean, is there any of this stuff good for us or is it all... Is it all not the case. Well, in general, um, I mean, obviously there are some good pharmaceutical products out there, but in general, my advice would be to everybody to focus on the bare basics of how they can be healthy. And I'd, I'd like to touch upon a, a few points here. Um, the calorie model is completely broken. I believe the calorie model was also another scam by the food industry to make low calorie products. Yeah. It is not the calories in the food. I'm not saying that plays no role at all. Obviously, if you eat 10,000 calories, it might not be a good thing in one sitting. But what you should really focus on is not calories. It's what has done it to the food. If you eat some eggs, spinach, mushrooms, um, and 
measure the calories, supposing what it comes to maybe four or 500 calories, that will be much better than a 300 calorie cereal bar that your body will be built for the natural food. So always keep that in mind. A calorie is not a calorie. It's what is done to the food and how your body is going to react to it, whether it's natural or not. Intermittent fasting, which you touched upon there. Absolutely, it works. I have a, a cousin right now that is intermittently fasting and achieving great results. Ultimately, I think a lot of the things which people say, oh, this works, this works, again, going back to first principles, it's simply because it's taking you back to nature. What do animals do in nature? They don't eat every three hours. They eat once a day, some of them. They won't eat for a couple of days. You're simply going back to what your body was built for. And a key driver of this is your insulin levels. We have Ruminant to talk about animals the, graze yeah. all day. Exactly. And some do. And I but, don't think yeah. we should be sheep. Yeah, we're not sheep. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Gets to another point. And most similar animals will just eat when there's food available. And uh, a lot of people will focus on different aspects of their diet. But I'd encourage people to focus on insulin levels. And again, feel free to do your own research. But insulin is the anabolic hormone which drives weight gain. So the more insulin spikes you have during the day, the more that your insulin goes up in response to food the more weight you are likely to put on and the more difficult you will find to get it off. So that's another reason why intermittent fasting works. It keeps your insulin levels low. A few other points while we're going to to, to finish up this particular topic of health and wellness. Um, what you eat, your diet is obviously the main determinant of your health. Exercise would come next. And then I would say the other things which are hugely important if you want to really focus on your health and well-being, which lots of people forget, adequate sleep every night. That's when your body regenerates. Working on stress in your life. Stress is a massive driver right now of chronic comorbidities as well. And many people don't focus on adequate stress relief, whatever works for the person. And then finally, your whole outlook on life. Um, most people out there need a, a purpose in life to, to focus on and feel completely happy. Those are the key pillars, I would say, of anyone's health um, level of health at any given point in time. And through my health and lifestyle coaching, those are all the things that I focus on. But number one, again, is diet. Your questions about pharmaceutical products. Again, I will, will say that every pharmaceutical product has to be taken in context. Our savior is never going to be big pharma for for the vast majority of society, our savior is going to be focusing on those fundamentals. If we get sick, fair enough, we can weigh up the evidence behind different pharmaceuticals. Vaccines, I mean, I had up until three years ago, I think this is a topic we're going to come to next, but up until three years ago, I'd had most of the recommended vaccines myself. I think there is a huge difference between the vaccine of old, which was produced by an old school professor with good intentions sitting in a lab designing something compared to the corporate enterprise they have become now. Keep that in mind. A lot of the traditional vaccines were have been around for a very long time and they were not made with profits in mind. So I, I've i gone a little bit further down that road. So I, I had vaccines as a kid and, you know, didn't have really a choice. Was jabbed in the arm, didn't think much of it. Um, when I went into med school, you had to get these hep B vaccines and again, didn't really think much of it. Took it. Thought, why not? Went to Africa to do an elective and had the yellow fever. I was like, okay, okay, take it. Um, I think around the 2000s when the flu jab kept getting pushed, I got a bit skeptical. I just thought, it doesn't work. The flu varies. Where do they even get the idea, the, the, the vaccine for this virus? It was all modeling. And 
I just wasn't convinced. I knew a lot of people who would get the shot and still get the flu and get pretty bad side effects. So I didn't take it. And I think um, I think in the last three years, my whole take on it has changed. I've read um, Turtles All the Way Down, which is an anonymous book. I think everyone should read it. It's anonymous because the authors realize that anyone who critiques the vaccine industry gets attacked. And if there's no authors, you can't attack the characters. You have to attack the substance of what the book is about and the data. And it's thrown apart blown apart the whole notion that these vaccines are necessary and you just have to look at the childhood schedule now how it's exploded and what is in vaccines well, it's exploded yes yeah, since we were young yeah exploded a lot since then yeah absolutely i mean it's, it's a crazy number of injections children now have to undergo and if you look at the latest kind of studies that for hpv the efficacy it's not there and, and i think it comes down to medical ethics first do no harm and the idea that any vaccine is 100% safe and effective isn't true. There are significant harms. And people have reached out to me and told me about them. And it's from neurological to autoimmune. And I've become very skeptical, I think, now. And whether these things ever did any make any difference or whether it's all been about money. And in 1986, and I, th- I think in the States, the, the U.S. government indemnified um, yep, President Pharma. Reagan did that, yep. yeah. Yeah from um, the vaccine companies, from any litigation, which I think was a mistake. Because if you've got something that works and is great, then you've got no worries about, you know, having any, you know, lack of um, indemnification. If there's a problem, well, then let's deal with it. The fact that you're having to get a government to to cover you is worrying as far as I'm concerned. Um, anyway, let's move on a little bit. So... It comes down to the diet, our lifestyle, personal choices. We're living in a very stressful environment. There's stress everywhere. I think, I don't know about you, but the media promotes fear. Oh, of course, yeah. The news is constant fear porn, which heightens stress levels. Um, the jobs that we're working, most families now have two couples that have to work. Traditionally, you used to have you know someone at home, a, a housewife. That would cook. It's very difficult for people these these days to say, well, you know, when do we get time to cook? And, you know, it's easy for you to say this. What what advice would you give to families like that? I would say I I do appreciate the fact that not only time-wise is it difficult to be healthy, but also cost-wise. A huge issue in the U.S. as well. This is being talked about um, availability and affordability of, of the good food. This is where I think ultimately the government is going to have to play a role because if you make real food the default cheapest choice, people will eat it. People will go for the cheapest choice. People need guidance like that. I would say keep this in mind. If if you don't make this a priority, eventually being sick, you've already alluded to this, will be much more costly for you. And ultimately it's about living your, your best life. Um, people like myself and Ahmed can can give you advice and guidance as to how you can do these things. But ultimately, it's all for you and your family, your children. If you want your children to be as healthy as possible, to be as mentally sharp as possible, then you have to pay attention to this because it is going to affect literally everything. There are so many important things in life, uh, your relationships, what you're doing, your work. But I would say nothing comes before your health because you can't do anything if you're not healthy. So you owe it to yourself. You owe it to this one shot you have at life 
to make this a priority, whether it's spending an extra half hour cooking and an extra and less half hour on Netflix, then you have to do that. And I'm a big believer in the one hour a day principle of exercise. People yeah. look at me and say, that's crazy. Think about this. That's only 4% of your day. And the benefits that you get from that hour of exercise will spill over to everything else. You'll be more mentally sharp. You'll sleep better. You'll have higher energy levels. Physiologically, your body will be working better. It's not an hour wasted if you focus on that. So there are multiple reasons why you need to make this a priority. And ultimately, we are creatures of habit. What's the rule? You do something for just over 60 days and it becomes ingrained into you. So once you get into these habits, you will find it very unnatural to eat a product which is in a packet full of like 20 plus ingredients, which are unnatural. You'll find it unnatural. You'll feel icky if you don't work out for a couple of days once you get into this habit. But you will be your best self. You'll be more energetic. You'll be sharper. You'll just feel a lot better from taking care of this. So I would advise everybody to make this a priority so that you don't end up that 50 year old on multiple medications who's sick when you're when your kids need you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I used to be that person. I used to work six days a week, day and night, 10 o'clock at night, go to bed at one thirty in the morning, doing emails and whatnot. Um, didn't have time to cook, didn't have time to exercise. I'd exercise once a month, maybe. Um, and I had excuses. And looking back, it, it was just, everything was just out of sync. I was just working too hard, chasing the dream, trying to get the big house, the fancy, been there, yeah. the fancy holidays, you know, the big resorts, the, the big car. And yeah, I, I think it was definitely my dad who woke me up from that. He literally told me, take it from me, I'm dying. I've only got a few months to li live don't live your life like this. And um, if he hadn't said that, and I thank him every day for that, I, I think I would still be there, to be honest. Um, so I've just, I've realized, live within your means. Don't work like a crazy person. Drive a secondhand car. Forget the fancy holidays. Forget the big house. Just be healthy and happy. And I exercise every day now. So it's funny, you know, that's why I went yeah, on my- It becomes part of your life. Yeah, yeah, it becomes part of my life. And, you know, I was like, Damn it, Sunil's coming this morning, but I can, it's a beautiful sunny day. I, I really want to go for my run now. So um, I like a morning run. Um, it's so much better, the light. And like I said, this morning I saw two deer right in front of me, which was just lovely. Um, and it just becomes a part of your life. Now, in terms of food, what I found is once you start cooking food yourself, it becomes so much easier. Um, and if you do meal planning, so we meal plan once a week. It's also a lot easier because a lot of the time you're like, what, do, what should we do? What should we make? But if you've actually sat down and put down on your phone or whatever what you're going to have every single day, then you can shop accordingly. You can plan. Um, you can also do batch cooking. So in the weekends, you cook a little bit more and then put it in your fridge or freeze if you have to. And then suddenly it actually becomes very easy. This whole notion of, oh, wow, it's really difficult. I don't have the time. It's actually very, very quick. It's a habit, yeah. It's just because it's a habit. And the thing is, habits are easy, um, whether they're good habits or bad habits. It's changing habits, which is difficult. But once you do that transition, that short period of you know discomfort, it's back to being easy again. And I think that's the key thing that I would always tell my patients and encourage people. Now, moving forward, you know, we've talked about big food, big agra, you know, these bad forces big agra for me is just as guilty and culpable they're they're 
you know, raping the soil of nutrients, depleting it, starving it itself. And then you grow food that is nutritionally very poor, which then gets processed the hell out of and made even more nutritionally depleted. And then we eat it and then we become sick and big pharma. It's a vicious circle. Yeah, profits from it and then says, here's a tablet, here's your solution. And I would argue the healthiest individual is someone who's not on any tablet or any pill or taking any drug. So it's, it's, we need to break out this horrible cycle that we're in. But the question is, why, now that I look at what's happened and it's so simple and easy to see, why are other doctors and why are the professional bodies and the boards and the universities and the medical colleges, why, why is no one talking about this? Because I don't know about you, I didn't have one lecture on diet, nutrition, exercise or sleep. And these are the fundamentals of Absolutely. good health. Yeah. So what's going wrong? What do you think? Well, I can uh, only speak for the United States where I've, I've practiced for, for a few years now and I'm, I'm very ingrained in the system over there. I would say that the, the main reasons are a combination of pure ignorance uh, for our system being profit-driven and our societies and organizations being utterly corrupt. I think that if you look at the influence of the pharmaceutical industry and other corporate interests, they pervade every level of medicine. Now, I wouldn't say, I mean, most of my friends right now are doctors in the United States. I wouldn't say your average doctor is is in it with a corrupt mindset. I think that they are trained to do a certain thing. They have their own concerns. They've all got their own lives. But collectively, the ignorance is, is staggering. It really is. And it comes right from the top. And I made this point on our Twitter space, uh, which was fantastic, by the way, a, a few days ago. I hope everyone gets a chance to, to check that out. But uh, I would say to any doctor in the UK, and of course, there is corruption and there are enormous conflicts here. Whatever you think the system is here in terms of corruption, multiply that 50 fold for, for the US. I mean, it is unbelievable. It's often very open the payments that are happening. What do you how, mean? Can you expand? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Uh, physician societies, medical journals are basically sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. It's all very open. They declare it openly. Um, they will do very expensive drug sponsored dinners all the time. Physicians will be paid speakers to speak on behalf of a medicine that they're prescribing. This is much more overt in the United States in a, a private for-profit system. I think large segments of the population are starting to see it and they're very fed up with it. Um, but uh, we don't right now have a big movement among physicians to uproot the system. And this goes right back to how doctors are trained. As you said, in medical school, we're not trained to focus on the basics. We are trained to follow protocols. And as things work, I can give you a recent example. A recent guideline came out about how we should be treating heart failure, which was totally industry-driven. And doctors, we were in a, a group, we were, were chatting about it, were just mindlessly repeating these big pharmaceutical talking points because they were not trained to critically think and really step back and, and think, well, what's the bigger picture here of how we can help our patients rather than just mindlessly prescribe an expensive drug, which when you look at the numbers, statistics, a dive into the data has a minimal percentage benefit compared to other things that you could be telling your patient to do. And the data is all being manipulated, isn't it? You're being told relative risk, not absolute risk. And 
And we don't even know the actual source of the data, how pure it is, what conflicts of interest there have been, the, the study flaws. Big Pharma just literally gives you the data to critique, but we don't actually have the raw information. And I think what I've what I've read now is quite scary how over so many years Big Pharma has corrupted the system. I was reading about Tamiflu, which was produced by Roche, which is a big pharmaceutical company. And they, they knew that it didn't work. But for, for years, they kept selling it and pushing it. And, you know, you'd go and doctors were being told um, from the management, every patient needs to get this Tamiflu. And, of course, if Tamiflu, are, you know, it's just like remdesivir now, this other new antiviral, which doesn't really work. I think the cost of it is like £3,000 for a five-day treatment or $3,000. I mean, these Same. are obscene amounts of money. They are. They and are. they keep repeating it. So they, yeah. they promote it. The studies aren't even that conclusive or showing that the efficacy the fda goes ahead and approves it and the who for some reason always backs these things as well even though the evidence isn't really there to show it and then it gets rolled out for everyone pushed to 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 prescribe and then the harms are kind of concealed or ignored and no one acts upon it and then eventually at some point it comes to light and it's like oh yeah, we made a mistake here. We'll just quietly withdraw. And the, but it starts again. The, yeah. and, the, and it's the just, cycle it, starts It repeats again. over and over again. Yeah, I mean, Tamiflu is one example. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of these examples where medicines are promoted uh, with monetary influence as well. Big Pharma also owns the media, owns the medical journals. But I would say a lot of blame has to lie with doctors collectively because we don't analyze data. I call it the robotic doctor. I made a, a parody video about this recently on my channel, but doctors will just mindlessly repeat talking points. We have one, a classic one in the US that I can give you for my residency training. We use- um, could, you, could you repeat it? Because I did watch that video. Would you be able to- 98% effective. <laughs> yeah, would you, would you be able to do that again? Yeah. <laughs> so it's just basically a, a physician, um, and I've dressed myself up with moustache and everything mindlessly repeating the line completely safe 98 percent effective because that's what the pharmaceutical industry and mainstream media said uh, let me give you an example from my residency training we have um, two nebulizers that we use in the the u.s if somebody has bronchospasm asthma copd one is just your standard albuterol which i think you call you you call it ventolin cell salbutamol in this country a very simple one and then there's another one called zopinex there was a study that came out, one study, one study, and I haven't checked, but it may have been sponsored by the makers of Zopinex, that showed that if you give a patient with tachycardia, which is a fast heart rate Zopinex, it has less of an effect on the heart rate. So typically you give a patient a nebulizer and their heart rate goes up a bit. But they proved that Zopinex had less of an effect than the albuterol nebulizer. So somehow Big Pharma managed to propagate this notion across medical societies, every single medical establishment. And wherever you would go in the country, if you asked any resident of medicine, what shall we give the patient? It literally came out of their mouth robotically. Oh, the patient's tachycardic. Let's give Zopinex. I thought, this is interesting. So I was only a resident at the time. I thought, let me go to the study. What, why is it this mindset that Zopinex is better? So I actually looked at the study they had designed the study to show a certain cutoff point for what is an effective reduction in heart rate difference. And it was something like four or five beats per minute. And Zopinex <laughs> is like three or four times more expensive. Wow. And 
this was mindlessly being repeated by doctors. Oh, patient tachycardic. Let's give Zopinex. Let's give Zopinex. And you ask any doctor, how much is Zopinex better than albuterol for having a negative effect on heart rate? Not one doctor would know, but they're mindlessly repeating this point, helping the makers of Zopinex make a ton of money. One example, Ahmed, I could give you dozens of examples like that. The medical establishment the system does not teach doctors to be critical thinkers. They want robotic protocol followers. And this is when these players can come in from the pharmaceutical industry and take advantage of what I call a useful idiot mindset in medicine. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but that's what many doctors are. They're useful idiots to help corporate interests make a ton of money because the corporate interests know that doctors are not going to critically think about anything. We've seen that over the last three years with vaccine efficacy side effects, etc. When you have an entire profession, which supposedly is supposed to be one of the most educated professions, the profession we can trust, and the public do not realize the degree to which doctors mindlessly follow what they are told and are not breaking things down. People like me and you are in the absolute minority. And ultimately, who suffers in the end? The patient. Yeah, but um, we're also apparently the quacks. We get called the quacks. I call... I have get called been, a quack, have, I call them d- drug pushers. <laughs> have you have you had, it's, I'm just, I feel really kind of down after hearing that because the truth is. Well, you must I, see it in the UK too. Yeah, this is I, a problem I, with the medical profession. It is a problem with the medical profession. And I mean, there's problems at every level, to be honest. Our government, our judiciary, our the media, our news doesn't in, inform it. It just brainwashes. Um, our education systems, our higher education systems, everything is public health, everything, regulatory bodies. The, the problem every is, level. now that I've woken up, there is nothing that I trust anymore. Everything I thought I could believe in, every institution has failed me. Congratulations, you've been red-pilled. <laughs> <laughs> and I can see why some people would not want to wake up, because it's a painful realisation. And it would be easier to stay comfortable in ignorance than face the harsh reality of truth, which is none of these things are working. And actually all of them are working against us. Now, when it comes to medical school, I think the problem is it selects people, I think, by default who obey, follow authority, want to conform it um, singles out people who are very good at rote learning, but not critical thinking. But actually, even further back, early years and high school, that is drummed out of you not to critically think. So you've got that cohort of people now going into med school. The lectures that we all had, again, it's just rote learning, knowledge. Here's anatomy, here's physiology, here's pathology, here's the drug to treat it. Um, We're not really taught about preventative medicine, lifestyle medicine, functional medicine. We're not even taught about the history of medicine. There's so much that I think we've lost, the the knowledge of humanity. I mean, up until 150 years ago, you know, people were using natural remedies, which worked. And we don't talk about that anymore because that's all quackery. Well, that goes back to Rockefeller and the Flexner Report. That is exactly the word they used for anyone who wasn't prescribing pharmaceutical products. They were labeled quacks. They had their medical licenses withdrawn. The schools were closed. This goes back a, a long way, and we cannot underestimate 
the battle that, that we face against an establishment which is entirely set up against us. If you are the kind of person like we are, we want to take health matters on our in our own hands. We can see the absolute clownery which we are surrounded by at every single level, and we ask questions. Clowns are good we, word. We are labeled the bad people, and this is what we're against. But the good news about 2023 is that we have social media, we have the internet, and we can raise awareness. Because I think a lot of people out there, when you sit down with them and actually present things in a logical way, a reasonable way, they can see that things are not quite right. Everybody wants to be healthy. Nobody wants to be stuck. But it's tough. It, it's tough in today's world to take well, that step and be fully red-pilled, as it were, and say, well, I've woken up to the fact that we have, I'm going to use the word clownery again, every single level, and I'm going to call it out. I'm not going to sit here quiet, because what will my life be worth? This is why I actually, I mean, I thank the last three years for, for yeah. waking me up. Me and you wouldn't be sitting here if this hadn't happened, and whether this ultimately leads to a collective awareness and we get to the toss great the people awakening. out at the top who are in positions that they shouldn't be in yep. remains to be seen but we have to keep up that fight yeah i mean 100 percent um and it's i think it's part of the great awakening but going back to the whole doctors the 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 next problem that i think is that a major issue is the whole you touched on it the national level protocols and guidelines it's stripped away a doctor's ability to think individually for that patient. You're just looking at that guideline, that protocol, and you have to follow it. And the the issue I have is, while it sounds very nice, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, these things are not without their own flaws, and they are corruptible. If you have four people sitting on a panel deciding on a set of protocols, they could be influenced by external factors and have conflicts of interest, which will then disseminate to hundreds of hospitals and thousands of doctors and millions of patients so that there's no accountability, there's no pushback. And that's driven, I think, doctors into fearful compliance, lack of critical thinking. Um, and then there's the whole erosion of the doctor-patient relationship through shifts. I know you said you didn't like that word, but... We, we do shift works where doctors yeah. come and go and they don't follow the journey. They don't follow the journey of the patient. It's okay, I've done my job now, bye bye. And, um, you know, it, medicine used to be an art, it used to be a vocation, it was a career. Now it's, it's a job and you get paid for it. And, you know, you know, it's a salary and it's reputation, kudos. And now, and I think, you know, doctors are human and flawed. And we're susceptible to financial interests. Um, and we are fearful of losing, losing our career and our livelihood. And for that reason, we stay quiet. And then also on top of that, then there's been people who've been made into scapegoats. And here in the UK, we had someone called Andrew Wakefield who linked the, MR, the, the vaccines with autism. And he was destroyed. I didn't remember at the time much about the case. Do you live in America now? I think he, I've heard of him. I think yeah. so. At the time when it when it all blew up, I wasn't even really sure what the issue was. All I knew was you didn't want to be an Andrew Wakefield because he was the devil himself, you know. And it, that's what these things do. They set an example on someone. They destroy them, shame them, so that other dissidents who want to question the narrative and you know, don't want to conform and want to put their head above the parapet, they get shot down. So there's that fear factor that, oh, I'm just going to put my head down and not say anything. 
And then there's cultural issues where, you know, we've had political correctness and the political correctness leads to hate speech and the hate speech leads to cancel culture and then that leads to self-censorship and then suddenly we've got problems. We've got problems. Um, Asim Mahotra um, was on Joe Rogan's podcast and he talked about how we've got to a problem. There's a systematic failure where doctors cannot speak out and say the truth um, for um, for their patients. That's the position we're in now. And I don't know about you, but, you know, this is not good. And I, and I don't see how we're going to get out of it. I mean, what are your thoughts? And how, how do we move forward from here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that ultimately is the, the main question here. So, so you mentioned Asim Malhotra, who has started to get a bit more attention now in the United States. I know he's bigger over here. I've uh, seen and, and heard a lot of his um, his views. Can I ask you, Ahmed, what, what are your thoughts on, on Dr. Malhotra and how do you perceive him? How is he perceived in the United Kingdom? So <laughs> it's interesting. Asim Malhotra. Um, there are many mainstream doctors who think he's a quack and he's crazy. I saw he's faced a lot of sanctions. Like it, he's... Yeah, yeah, had a he, lot of people after him. Yeah, yeah. He, the, he's had people complain about him to the GMC. He's been investigated. He lo- he's lost his job in the NHS as a result. He's faced a lot of backlash stemming from stuff that he's talked about, statins and, and drugs and big pharma and corruption. And now because he's speaking out against the vaccine and the vaccine harm. So a lot of people are, um, yeah, very critical of him. On the awake side, on the freedom side, there are also people who are very critical of him because at one point he went on TV and said, yeah, I'm going to have the vaccine and I can understand why people are vaccine hesitant and it seems to be safe and we should take it. So they are very upset with him that he had that position and they feel that he should have known better because he's spoken out against Big Pharma. He's made a name for himself, a reputation for speaking out of big pharma, so why is he now, you know, pushing this? Um, I've heard him and I've asked him this question, and he's put his hands up and said, "Look, I was just like any other doctor, blindly believed the vaccines were the holy grail, safe, don't question them, and my attention was always on drugs, and the vaccines were for for people who dealt with vaccines and immunology, and it just wasn't on my radar." And some people might say, well, that's a load of nonsense. Well, you can say that, but that's what he's saying. And Sunil, I thought vaccines were okay at one point in my life. And I only kind of got skeptical around the 2000s when I was in my 30s. I'm 47 now. So it came you know, quite late. I, I didn't, I didn't, I was not always against vaccines. And, and, you know, I was thinking along the lines that these are safe and they're great and they've helped eradicate diseases like polio and, you know, measles. So, yes. So I never questioned them either. And I think that's part of our education system, the indoctrination, the brainwashing, the propaganda. Um, And it's only recently I've also taken the point that why why can't we question this? Why is it the sacred cow? Because as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to patient safety, nothing should be a sacred cow. We should be able to question every aspect of society, of patient care, any treatment, any therapy, 
Um, and ask questions. Of course, especially if people are having side effects, adverse Abs- events, people are dying. You can't science is not deb- question that. Yeah, science is debate. Science is not censorship. So if he says that he he, he was blindly thinking that these were, were an okay thing, I, I believe him. I have to believe him. But the reality is as soon as the mandates came out, he was vocal against the mandates. Which is a good thing. Which is a yeah. good thing. And then equally, when... Um, the vaccine harms came around, he was very vocal again. Now, I am sitting here in front of you because of him, actually. Um, in December, he I reached out to him because I wasn't sure if he was one of the good guys. And I wanted to meet him face to face. And a day before we were meant to meet up for dinner, he messaged me as I was just about to start to operate and say, can you do are you seeing vaccine harms yourself? And I said, yes, I am. And I am. Patients are telling me, families are telling me. People, I'm just walking along, you know, the duck pond with my kids and someone will come up to me and tell me vaccine harms and he's got a clot in his leg and goodness knows what. I mean, there's so many stories I could tell you. And I said, yes, of course I am. And he said, could you please do a video saying to that effect and whatever you want? Because... Not enough doctors are speaking out. Now, I had spoken up against the mandates and gone on TV to speak about them. I hadn't spoken about the lockdowns, um, even though I should have, but I was dealing with my own mental demons. I had fallen for the fear porn for three, four weeks. I'd pushed it on my Instagram saying, oh, we need a lockdown. Um, Okay. No, nothing to be ashamed of. I Lots was, of people did. I was in a bad place getting into Media the Media lo- was really heavy on that. Yeah, yeah I, was also, to I was also involved that, yeah. in the Brexit campaign in 2018-19 and faced a lot of abuse and backlash from my colleagues. It hit my private practice, my income, my, my morale, my faith amongst my colleagues. So I was in a bad place. I couldn't wait for 2020 to begin, to be honest. So I'm, start, I'm waiting for this fresh new year to get my life back on track. <laughs> Brexit is behind me. And suddenly we're, we're, we're heading into this pandemic. And, I, you know, I was in a low place to begin with, and I fell for the fear porn. And I'm really annoyed because I, I've always been very questioning on this conspiratorial aspect, questioning Big Pharma, questioning government, their intentions, the wars, everything. And I fell for this for three, four weeks, and I, I felt terrible. And as soon as the lockdowns actually happened, within a week or two, I thought, oh my God, this is a, such a big mistake. What is this? Why did I fall for this? And the more I read, and the more you know, I, I, I looked into things, the more depressing and dark it got. And I was now sure. isolated, I wasn't working, I've got no income. There was no protection for people like me who are self-employed, I'm full-time private. I'm not allowed in the hospital and I'm looking after three young children. It's all very stressful, homeschooling. So I turned off the TV, the news, everything. I, I just, you're, we're in this garden. You can see this garden. This is what, you know, the project was. Beautiful garden, by the way. Thank you. I <laughs> you dug up the it. pond. Yeah. I, we put up the raised beds. We grew vegetables. And, you know, this is, this is where we lived. It was a beautiful summer that, that year as well. Spring, summer, it kept me sane. Um, but I should have spoken up against it the lockdowns, um, but I didn't because dealing with my own mental demons and I didn't even know there was a resistance movement. I thought I was the only person on the planet who felt differently. I thought everyone 
thought it was a good thing. I'm the only one who doesn't think it's a good thing. There must be something wrong with me. Or the whole of the world. Either or, it's not a good option. But I spoke out against the mandates. And then I thought, yeah, I want to speak out against the vaccine harm. So I did a video. I went back to operating. And um, when I finished operating, Seema had messaged me saying, oh my goodness, your video's gone viral. I retweeted it. On YouTube? On Twitter. Twitter, okay. And I had only got a thousand followers at that time from the Brexit days. And I hadn't really been using Twitter, you know. And I looked at the the thing and I was like, wow, oh my goodness, you know, almost a million views now. This is clearly resonating and, you know, taking traction. But within 24 hours, the national medical directors of two of the private hospitals I work out um, emailed me. Within how long? 24 hours. Wow. Okay, so fast, yeah. Saying, if you don't take down this video, if you don't stop tweeting, if you don't stick to your scope of practice, we're going to have to review your practicing privileges and you might not be able to work our wow. hospitals. my goodness. And that basically means all my income. And, you know... <laughs> I've still got a mortgage, young family, wife. This is kind of stressful. But I'm also teaching my kids about how to deal with bullying and and how you have to stand up to bullies. So I asked them, what should I do? I'm being bullied. And they're like, Dad, you need to stand up to them. So I wrote back to them and said, this is medical censorship. You talk about my scope of practice. My scope of practice is more than just fixing feet. I actually truly treat the whole patient. And I've got hundreds of patients who would testify to that. Because when I take a history, I do talk about sleep and stress and diet and exercise. Fantastic. And I've overturned people's um, obesity and type 2 diabetes. I've helped people reverse their mental illness. I've helped with stress. I've diagnosed cancers. And, you know, and neurological problems. Because I believe I practice holistically. But this has only been in the last four years as I've gone on this journey myself. So I said, one, no, my scope of practice is actually I'm a doctor first, then a surgeon, then an orthopod, then a foot and ankle specialist. And two, it is part of my scope of practice to take care of patient safety and stand up for patient safety and... The General Medical Council guidelines 23 and 24 talk about talking up and speaking up about patient safety issues and having a culture of openness and transparency. And do you want me to go against the GMC guidelines? Well, they backed off. So now I'm thinking, great, little victory. And what do I do? Do I stay quiet and go back to my life, which I did after the mandate? And I thought, no, there's not enough doctors. And Asim is on his own. And when I did meet him, he thanked me because he said, it's very lonely. And I'm being attacked by everyone on the awake side, on, on the, the, the pharma side. And I thought, yeah, let's do it. Now, Asim, back to Asim, he can come across a bit aloof, a bit arrogant, very self-sure. And I can see why that would put people off. It kind of put me off before I knew him. Um, but I think if it wasn't for the fact that he is someone who has so much self-belief and confidence, he wouldn't be doing what he's doing right now. 
he wouldn't be standing up to the whole machinery of Big Pharma. It takes balls to do that. And part of his nature is to be cocksure and, and I don't give a damn what people say. I'm going to, you know, and that comes across arrogant, but actually we need that. And yes, people would like him to say sorry. And I've had so many conversations with him saying, just say sorry, put your hands up and say, I made a mistake. But he's like, no, no, no. And again, that's his nature. He's like, I look at the time, the data suggested it was okay for certain groups. And I went along with that. The moment I realized it wasn't, I've been the most vocal and I've been attacked left, right and center. Why should I apologize? And I can understand that too. So I've given him the benefit of the doubt. I think he's one of the good ones. And I think he's in the fight and he's trying his best. And you have to think about what he's lost. He's lost his father and he thinks to these vaccines and he's on his own and he's going to come on this podcast and talk about his own personal sacrifices that he's had to make. So that's my answer to that. And then for me, I thought if they want me to stop tweeting and stop talking about the vaccines, which aren't really vaccines, they're experimental gene they're not in therapies, interventions. Well, we had to change the definition of a vaccine, <laughs> which our lovely head organization in the U.S. did for the whole world. I know. To, to fit the bill, because that's how things work in medicine and science, right? Yeah. <laughs> you change yeah. the definition. You just change the definition when things don't work. <laughs> exactly. Clowns. Clowns. <laughs> so basically, I thought, I, I'm going to do the opposite. If they want me to be quiet, I'll do the absolute opposite. I will tweet away, and I'll stand up for medical ethics and... What should be right? Because, look, I'm not an expert on a lot of these issues. I don't know. And I think it's it's been deliberately done like this. There's a fog of war and confusion and misinformation and distraction. You know, is it, is it, where did the flu go? Is it a flu revamped? Is it a coronavirus? Is it both? Is it engineered? Is it from Wuhan? Is it from another lab? I, I just don't know. What is it? Was it a furin cleavage site? HIV yeah. subunit? I just don't care. I really, you know, the spike protein. And, you know, if, if that's a harmful thing, why why would you put that in the vaccine to reject you know, the, the mRNA to, to, to create the thing that's toxic? That I don't understand this. Like, there's a lot of questions out there. That I, I don't have the answers to. Why did why did we do lockdown when for years and years our pandemic preparedness documents said do not do lockdowns, they don't work. You know, we've got people like Chris Whitty saying lockdowns don't work, giving a lecture on that, and then if you know, then he's saying we need lockdown, you know, and the, why why did all these things happen? Why is Bill Gates involved in vaccines? What's his interest in Gavi and the Bill and Gates Foundation? Is it really altruistic, you know, charity, non-profit? What, where, where is his incentive? What are the conflicts of interest? Why do they fund all the big media companies? And by being funded by them, are they censoring the truth? Who's behind the fact checkers? I've got so many questions. Oh, it, questions it goes are on and on and endless. On. Questions are endless. But what, what do I know? What do I know is that I know I, I know about medical ethics. Which is the most important thing. The most important thing. Yeah. Medical ethics underpin the doctor-patient relationship. This hard-won, centuries-long 
process to to get the doctor patient relationship which is based fundamentally on trust um and that's why we were one of the most trusted professions because the patients could trust us with the deepest thing their bodies their health their minds and to have that trust you need medical ethics and there's pillars of medical ethics and the first one is very simple do no harm first do no harm then there's bodily autonomy you ultimately decide what is and isn't done to your body you know but um beneficence so make sure we do good that whatever we're doing is done for the right reasons it's going to make someone better and then informed consent you know we give the patient all the information we're not just telling the patient you have to go away and do the homework if we're going to be the, their their clinician we need to tell them all the information the pros and cons the benefits the heart, the risks not absolute you know, so not relative risk reduction, absolute. The true perspective, yeah. The true perspective, none of this fudgery and data manipulation. And after all of that, we need to give them choice. And one of the choices is you don't need to do anything. That should be an acceptable choice, you know. Um, it's not the case that I see a patient and go, well, non-optive treatment is physiotherapy and you have to buy these expensive orthotics and get an injection and then the other alternative is surgery. No, the the third option is you, you can just leave it. Um, and then that decision has to be made in an environment where there is no coercion, no duress, Absolutely. no intimidation, no yeah. humiliation, um, no incentive, no burger, <laughs> no money, um, no restriction in your life, ability to travel or work. Does this all sound familiar? It sounds very familiar, and so, I mean, I'm inspired so, by your your personal story there as well of standing strong and thank you and and sticking by your guns in the face of coercion and enormous pressure, enormous pressure. I, I faced that myself, and and it's tough to do. I'd it's like to hear to that do. in a Congratulations. second. Congratulations! I'd like to hear that in a second. So, I know about medical ethics and informed consent, and I know it's it's been completely destroyed in the last few years. And I think I'm, I am angry and upset with the government and the authorities. I'm not really surprised or upset with Big Pharma because I know fundamentally how corrupt they are. I kind of expect that from them, to be honest. But what I didn't expect is our regulatory bodies, our colleges, our royal colleges, our professors, all these people to go along with the big lie. I expected better from them. And I think that's what's really upset me. And then I'll equally, I'm very upset with fellow doctors because they, of all people, should have known about medical ethics because if they are not the arbiters and advocates of um, patient safety and medical ethics, who is? And how can you just put aside your, the whole Hippocratic oath, medical ethics, and forget about all of that? And and then I think there's some fundamental failings with groupthink, with professional hubris, arrogance, and I think part of again is culture. When you when you have fear, it gets rid of critical thinking, and we've talked about it. There wasn't much there to begin with, and then when you add in virtue signaling, which is you know everybody putting up on their Facebook, yeah, look at me, exactly. I got my shot. Look at this. It's a Virt- joke. <laughs> virtue signaling for me is the laziest form of doing good. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, 
it is. It's lazy. And it's often a way to cover up your own deficiencies. Yeah. And then, so you don't do any good. You just post up there in the tribe. Look at me. Look how good I am. I am a good person. The problem with this virtue signaling and manipulation of people to think that those who didn't want to take the vaccines would become the undesirables, the dirty, the stupid, the racist, the misogynistic, whatever you want to call it. People, politicians, celebrities were labeling those who didn't want to have the vaccine. I remember the Second World War lectures and, and, and history lessons. There was another group of people who were made to be the dirty class, the other, yeah. the other, the deserving of contempt, the deserving of punishment, the deserving of ostracization, experimentation, and genocide. And I used to wonder as a, as a kid, how did a whole country do this? Descend to that. You know, it was okay, a civilized country. A civilized well. country, yeah. a very advanced, very culturally advanced, great music, art, theater. They had a big movie industry. How did this country suddenly descend into this madness? I can understand a few people at the top, Nazi party, whatever, but the country went along with this. It's true. So, Neil, the last three years have taught me how that happened. Agree completely. And it's desperately sad it is it's often said that you look at some of the megalomaniacs of the last century adolf hitler joseph stalin did they actually kill anyone i'm not aware that they killed anyone personally it was everyone else that killed people they were directing everything they were evil but they never actually killed anyone it was other people their foot soldiers that did it so always keep that in mind when we're talking about the Terrible events that have happened throughout history. There were millions of willing participants. It was your average Joe that was playing along with it and staying silent. So it wasn't exactly, it wasn't the people right at the top pulling the trigger. But for example, um, at the time, my wife and I were having major disagreements. It's funny, um, when, I, when the cameras are new, the, there's a reflection of her off the the pictures behind you. And Perfect. She, you can see her digging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. For anyone who's picked that up, that's my wife digging the garden. We're, we're putting a chicken coop in and a chicken run. <laughs> we're, we're becoming self-sustainable. Um, so basically, my wife and I were not on the same page. And it almost tore our ma marriage apart. And our marriage was strong to begin with. You know, I'm sure the trolls would love to say, oh, Hancock came in between you and your wife. What does that tell you about your marriage? Well... No, what it tells me is that the government did use weapons-grade psyops against its own they population. Did. And this is fact. And anybody can look this up. And that's a very powerful thing. The doctors, like my wife, were being told on a daily basis that this disease was going to kill them, that doctors, frontline people were dying, and they needed to wear a mask. She'd come home with the lines on her face. And... You know, they needed a vaccine to get out of it. If her husband was ever going to get back into a private hospital, because they were now full of NHS patients, if your husband's ever going to work again and have an income, he, he needs to get the vaccine. So we were, we were on a different page, and it almost tore our marriage apart. And I think that's another reason why I was very quiet. It's very difficult to wage war on two fronts. True. And I, we weren't happy at home. 
we were drifting apart. We didn't have much to talk about. I wanted to talk about the evil. And my wife thought I was crazy. <laughs> um, but anyway, where was I? We're, we're on the same page now, thank goodness. And our marriage is even stronger and she's awake. She actually, I, I cried when she came up to me one day and said, I'm awake and I'll never be asleep again. Ah, anyway, it was, it was quite a thing. We've been through a lot. Yeah. Last. And and I think that's another reason why I'm angry with the government because of what it did to us. It tore families, communities, friends, couples apart, parents against children, you name it. I have heard so many stories and, you know, I hold the government and the media guilty. As you should. And you actually in the UK had initially you appeared to be much more sensible. I remember I was putting that out on social media. Yeah, look, the UK is being sensible. They're not going to lock down because the US had, especially where I was, started to lock down. Obviously, the US was different everywhere you went. And I thought that the UK was going to be more sensible and ended up having a much stricter lockdown than the US, which never really had a lockdown. They shut things down, but there were never any restrictions on travel or meeting oh, anywhere wow. in the US. That's Constitutionally, that's most impossible to do in the u.s so you've that's guns. one I, I also think in the u.s got, compared yeah. to the uk i think because of your state system which protects it from federal um correct o- over yeah. overreach and the fact you all have guns is one of the big factors why it's so hard for them to do that but going back to what i was saying um i lost my trail of thought but my wife at one point um showed me a face facebook group of thousands of doctors i think almost twenty thousand who are encouraging vaccines and discussing vaccines. And she was like, maybe if you read this, you'll understand. You're very isolated. And maybe this will change your opinion. And it was a mass exercise in groupthink, herd mentality, and bullying. There was ringleaders. The profession in a nutshell, mob were, mentality. Yeah, there were ringleaders within the group. And they would, they would, Pile on to anyone who even barely suggested, you know, questioning. So, for example, I remember this one case that really, really upset me. It was a a young female doctor who said that after her first shot, she had had COVID. So she's already had COVID. She had her first shot and felt very unwell for several weeks afterwards, like she'd never felt before. Worse than the infection, worse than COVID. She's now discovered she's pregnant. And she's now due to have her second vaccine. And she's having doubts. What does the group think? An obvious question. Now, to me, it's pretty bloody obvious. You've had COVID, so you're kind of immune. You've had a shot. You've had adverse effects. You are pregnant. Don't have the second shot. There must have been about a thousand comments from, go ahead, you need the second shot, to, why are you questioning it? You're not an anti-vaxxer, are you? Why are you even asking this question? Why? That's my only question. Why are you even thinking about this? You should be grateful you're getting a second shot. You should get it. This was, these were all British. British doctors, British. This is just one of many stories. And then on the same group, when I, when I became vocal and people like Asim Mahotra, the stuff that they would say, 
about people like me. And I can't say those words here because they're that offensive. And these are from doctors, professional doctors, ridiculing other doctors and other patients who didn't want to take an experimental jab. I am disappointed with a lot of my colleagues because they took part in that exercise, that they weren't brave enough to stand up and say, this is wrong. We shouldn't talk like this. We shouldn't speak like this. We should respect other people's opinions. We shouldn't violate medical ethics, the Nuremberg Code. We don't, we don't experiment on pregnant women and children. And also, even if they weren't the ringleaders and the bullies, staying silent, as far as I'm concerned, is being complicit. Of course. And if we want to be the noble profession, well, you, you, need, to, you need to be noble. And right now there's a silence and anyone like me who does speak out is labeled a quack and a crazy person and is referred to the GMC and is investigated and bullied and harassed and made an example of. And there's doctors here in the, in, in the UK, like Dr. David Cartland, Dr. Sam White, um, Dr. Adil Mohammed, I think his name is. Um, Dr. Asim Mahotra. So you asked me again about Dr. Asim Mahotra. He's got everything to lose. I've got everything to lose. So yes, while we might have made some mistakes, you know, we're trying to remedy it. Anyway, enough about me. What kind of backlash have you faced? Because you've been quite vocal. And what's your journey been like during this whole COVID thing? Did you make my mistake? Did you fall for the fear porn or were you much wiser? <laughs> uh, well, I, I was skeptical. Before I even get into this, I have to say I'm totally inspired and captivated by your story, Ahmed. And thank you so much for sharing it here right from the beginning. I mean, that is inspiring to anyone listening. I mean, Ahmed is someone who's worked very hard to get to the high position he's in and he put it all on the line. So ask yourself that question if you're you're listening and uh and need a, a model of inspiration here in the UK looked look no further than I was going to say Dr. Malik, but you're not doctors here. You're Mr. Malik, aren't you? Different from first. the US. Yeah. Okay. Doctor the US, first. you would not be Mr. You'd be Dr. Malik. Mr. Malik, the, yeah. the surgeon. So I'm, I'm happy to, to share with you my story. So I, as well, I actually, um, like you said at the beginning, I was actually in a, a good place early 2020, professionally, personally, everything was going well. And then we start to see those reports um, come out about this mystery virus. And I was I was tracking it the whole time and I knew it was a coronavirus. I could see clearly from what was happening in Italy, certain groups were affected. And I actually, when they started to, when the media started to explode and just talk about this nonstop, I think I was, I know I was very, very skeptical from the beginning, but I, I think a lot had brought me to that point where I could be skeptical. I'm a practitioner of stoicism. I uh, have been following uh, the stoic philosophy uh, for, for a, a few years, actually, and, and, and that trained me to sort of step back and What is and the stoic recognize. philosophy? Well, stoicism, it, there's a lot of confusion. It's not actually a, a religion. It's a philosophy which was founded in ancient uh, Greco-Roman times. One of the greatest um, one of the greatest practitioners of stoicism was the great Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. Oh. So basically, stoicism teaches you to try to separate yourself from emotions. It doesn't mean you shouldn't experience emotions. It means that you should approach life with a certain philosophy of understanding the reality of the world and the reality of human nature and differentiating between those things in your life that you can control versus things that you cannot control. So that the whole idea of stoicism 
is to instill in you a philosophy that all that's in your power is your own reaction to situations and learning that humans can be very mad and have been mad throughout human history and we get these repetitive cycles over and over again. So I think the fact that I had that sort of philosophy for some time and in fact even before I even got into stoicism I, I was kind of trying to institute more philosophical approaches to life situations and understanding the reality of the world but I thought right from the beginning that this was a social media-led contagion mm. and people were panicking and I could recognize that panic because I myself have trained myself over the year to approach situations in a, a calm way in life. So I remember at the time I was on Facebook and I put out a message to all of my friends, mostly in the United States. I said, look, I do not understand this. I think that the world is going a bit mad here. We're devoting 100% airtime to it. Look at the facts. It's affecting older people. Yeah. The mortality rate, I actually said this, I, I said the mortality rate is not going to be far off the flu. And a few other doctors around me thought this in the US as well. And I said, there is no need to panic. Just keep, you know, stay calm, see how things unfold. But this shouldn't totally bring down the whole world. And shortly afterwards, like I've already said, is when I actually sent a message out saying I thought the UK was doing the right thing in not wanting to lock things down. But as you may remember, things moved extremely fast in those first few weeks. President Trump came out, made a statement, shut down the airspace. Then businesses started to shut down. I was mm. in Massachusetts and New York. And then around then, I actually got sick. And it was funny because... I, and this shaped the entire series of events and what brought me here. This is important to, for, for listeners to understand. So I got what I thought was a mild viral infection and I ended up taking a day off work, which I rarely do. On a scale of one to 10, it was maybe a six. But I remember I got better for a little bit and I was still working out at home every single day. I mean, it wasn't terrible. It felt like the flu. It got, it was like, I could feel it for maybe three or four days and it got better for three days. Then it came back and I thought that's weird. So for a couple of days, I felt under the weather. I was back at work in no time, but I had this lingering dry cough and I thought, this is really strange. I can see that this virus has probably been around for a while, longer than we think. And I know that I live in very crowded areas. I travel to New York a lot from Boston. And because I had this dry cough for a couple of weeks I thought I had COVID I'm 100% convinced because a, I never take time off work and that symptom of a dry cough is very unusual I've never had that before again it wasn't a terrible illness I probably had worse flus to be honest got better but it was always in the back of my head that I had had COVID and this is after I'd spoken out saying we don't need to panic so then come April time I go and get my antibodies tested and sure enough they are sky high sky high antibodies and I thought I had COVID and I wrote about that at the time I said look here's my test I had COVID I want to reassure all of you it wasn't that bad I know who will is likely to be affected we're starting to see COVID come into the hospital but I've had COVID fair enough and then time went on I was working at the front lines the whole time in different hospitals seeing COVID come in we were never overwhelmed where I was we sort of had cases and patients were getting better. I saw 90-year-olds, 100-year-olds, we were discharging them. This is before the vaccines. And it was obvious that there was a high asymptomatic rate. People's family members were at home with maybe a sore throat. And I could see that this was an illness which was affecting certain people. We knew clearly the risk factors. Elderly being number one, obesity was huge, no pun intended. But every single patient I saw under the age of 50 who got hospitalized was obese. 
diabetes. Males were more likely to get it than females and end up hospitalized. But I thought, okay, so this is clearly an illness, but it's nowhere near as as insanely devastating as people are making out. So time went on. Um, you know, we were in and out of these situations where businesses were shut around me. And then the uh, vaccine news came out late in the year. Mm. And all the time I was checking my antibodies every couple, few weeks. It's easy to do that in the U.S. Sky high. And then the paper came out um, from the Pfizer vaccine. And I was the only person I know that actually read the paper. And I said, and I, I actually wrote about this. It's all still there. And I said, look, I've read, as you read the paper, and I'm telling you the absolute risk reduction is tiny. Lots of groups were excluded. This is not going to be the end of it's COVID. It's a very flawed study. It's a very flawed study. And I said, it's this shocking, was actually. done over a few weeks. And all these people, you saw the same things, were going around posting on Facebook and Twitter, the end, getting the vaccine. I said, what are you talking about? Have you read the study? Do you understand this is a coronavirus which is going to mutate? It's not going to go anywhere. This is not going to be the end. And then things played out over, this is early 2021. And then in April, this was, you talked about your moment where you became more well-known. So I had a fair presence on online, on various platforms, and I posted on YouTube a video of me sitting in my car, still wearing my scrubs. And I said, the title was, should I take the COVID vaccine? And it was completely scientific. And I've told, I told everyone what I've just told you. I said, look, I had COVID. I'm checking my antibody levels. They're sky high. Why would I need the COVID vaccine when I already, it was a mild illness. What was it going to save me from? What's the data? Why are we ignoring natural immunity? That video went viral. Mm. And all of a sudden I started to get more followers, started to get more questions. And then um, I had a few threats against me from organizations where I'd previously worked saying, oh, you know, what are you talking about? And, you know, I think there was some confusion where it looked on one of my social media profiles, like I still work there. So they made a threat and I said, you know, basically, you know, F you, I don't even work for you anymore. What are you bothering me for? So whatever, you know, I, I never associate myself with any facility that I work in because I independently contract. But I said, this is my view. I don't understand why I need the COVID <clears> vaccine. And that rubbed a ton of people the wrong way. I got very insulting messages sent to me. People emailed me just, again, like you said, I've had terrible, terrible words that yeah. I can't even repeat here. And I thought, this is strange. Why are you so worked up with someone who's putting forward a logical argument? And there were, I don't think I got any threats then from YouTube or social media to remove me. But clearly, a lot of people were very upset that I even raised the question. And in the back of my head, even though I framed it as a question, should I get the COVID vaccine? I think I knew I was not going to get it. I was not comfortable with the technology. I, was, I, I knew that it was not going to do me any good. And I knew from the data that people who had already had COVID were reacting more to it. And I was in that demographic that is high risk for myocarditis. I'm athletic and, you know, I was likely to react to the vaccine. So I knew I wasn't going to take it. And I thought, oh, no big deal. Nothing's going to happen. Then all of a sudden, start to be mandated mm. in hospitals, healthcare yeah. facilities. The bubble starts to get the, smaller. Exactly. And I was <laughs> having these conversations because I contract out with multiple facilities, HR departments saying you have to get it. And I said, look, I've had COVID. I'm a doctor. I don't even want to argue with you. You're not a doctor. Let me speak to another physician. It should not be your choice. But in the United States, as opposed to here, I mean, I know you've had your issues with royal societies, but my understanding is that your royal societies were a bit more vocal in the UK at saying that mandates are unethical. 
whereas in the US they were not. I think a few said mandates um, are not right, but they were still pushing the vaccines. They were pushing the vaccines, and I I have less issues with pushing something than than forcing it, coercing it. So in the US, every single physician society, most nearly all of them are utterly corrupt. If anyone is listening from a physician society in the United States, whether that's the American Medical Association or anyone else, let it be known that I think you are completely and utterly corrupt and you should be disbanded. We have disgraceful physician organizations that are all completely on the payroll of Big Pharma. I'm not a member of any of them. I want nothing to do with them whatsoever. I think they bring great shame on the practice of medicine and the Hippocratic Oath. Surprise, surprise, every single one of them was lockstep with the bureaucracy, which is coming from the White House, with all of the people who have shadowy relationships with Big Pharma. They were saying you should have mandates. And anyway, I was interacting with all of these different organizations that I was affiliated with. I got let go by a couple of them. They said, you can't continue working here. Fortunately, some of the major ones that I work in, I had better relationships and we were able to work something out. Some of them included me having to test myself for COVID. Fair enough. But there was no way that I was going to take the a flawed test as well. Flawed test. I was not going to take it. And I took a stand and I said, look, I will leave the country if needed. As soon as Joe Biden and the White House introduced that mandate for all healthcare facilities. This came in the fall of 2021. I was prepared to take that stand. Probably would have ended up moving to another state because states like Florida and Texas were fighting hard against this federal mandate. That's another good thing about the US is everything is different and states kind of do different things. But I would have had to uproot myself and I would have done that. I was not going to take it based on the fact that I'd already had COVID, natural immunity was being ignored, and I had enormous reservations. But natural immunity is rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only hasn't worked for the whole. It's, it's a very basic fundamental of every species that exists on this planet. To deny natural immunity, you're denying the basis of evolutionary biology. I know. And I couldn't believe and that's that. Not, and that's not a yeah. conspiracy theory, is it? It's not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> But it wasn't just that. I thought it was unscientific, illogical, and unethical, regardless of whether I had vac. I, I can't say, speak for if I hadn't had COVID, would I have taken the vaccine? Maybe I still wouldn't have because I had other concerns with it. I'm not comfortable with that genetic technology. The You probably agree with me on this. I mean, organizations have jumped on board with this money-making technology, and they're talking about other vaccines now. To me, the human... DNA genetic system is sacred and you just don't muck around with that very easily. You can't hijack human genetic machinery to produce mRNA. You can't do that. There are going to be some consequences. So if push came to shove and somebody held a weapon against me or or my family and said, you have to take something, I would have found a way to take a non-mRNA product. I'm not going to take any mRNA product ever. I've already made that choice. But I was put in an impossible situation, Ahmed. I mean, I was debating with 20-something-year-old HR execs whether or not I should do something for my own health. Now, I'm a doctor. Why should I be in that position? I will never forgive what happened yeah. to me. And I still have those emails. In fact, I came across one the other, other day where a HR professional was being very rude to me, telling me that I must do this for my patients. I don't understand science. And I was stick my finger up at you. How dare you? Do you not How find dare you say that to me? That's really what you're describing. We actually all went through. It's painful. 
Sunil, hearing this from you, intelligent guy, you've gone through university, you've gone through med school, you worked hard, you're doing your best to treat people, and then you're getting these diktats telling you what to do now and forcing something on you against your you know, your own personal choice, bodily autonomy, violating everything that we hold dear in medical ethics. Um, and it's, it was stressful. It was stressful because you're thinking, I, I, what am I going to do? I can't practice now. And I had the same situation. Where am I going to go? In the UK, everywhere. I'm going to leave my family and my kids and my wife. I have to find a new job. Um, and the mandates were sinister. It wasn't, they, they, they were saying how it's frontline workers. But no, the real mandates that they were pushing were private and public hospitals. So the majority of people here are NHS. But it was frontline, secretarial staff, cleaners, cooks, auxiliary. Even contractors, if someone was coming in to mow the lawn or put up a fence in the hospital or put in a change the light bulb, they also had to have the vaccine. It's we insane. were talking about millions of people and they did it to 40,000 care workers who lost their job. So they said to all the Crazy. care workers, you need to have it. So that, that was quietly mandated. 40,000 people lost their jobs. They realized they could push, keep pushing further and then they came for the healthcare workers. And then if they had got that, then they would have mandated it to everyone. And then they would have done it to the children. So it was a very dark, scary place. Because I think when it starts with, for the greater good, that's the end. That's the end. That's the and end. And it was based on a lie. Based uh, on a lie. Not stopping transmission doesn't stop you from getting sick. There was no logical reason how on earth any person who calls himself a doctor or scientist could think that a vaccine for a coronavirus would stop transmission? There is absolutely no scientific basis. Vaccines do not stop transmission of anything. If they work, they stop you from getting the illness. Absolutely. They can't stop a virus from transmitting. It's, and everything it's a lie. That, everything it's a complete we, and lie. Everything that was a conspiracy theory has come true. And actually, everything that they said... That was the biggest conspiracy theory as far as I'm concerned. Now, what really terrifies me is this flawed technology that has never been proven to work, which was actually being investigated for cancer treatment. Moderna never made any money from any product up until this date. Yep. It was deemed unsafe before. It was I deemed, an article it was, from four years ago. Too it, many side effects. Too they many side it, effects. Yeah. Lipid nanoparticles. We don't even know what the harm of that is whether it's the mRNA, the lipid nanoparticles, and anything else that's put inside these vaccines. The vaccines also use something called adjuvants, and they are designed to elicit an inflammatory response, reaction. And you just and they use aluminium, and they used to use mercury, and some still do, I think, maybe. And it's just weird that what is actually in these drugs. No one tells us. We're not allowed to even ask. And even now, I think no one... It's a proprietary secret. You know, if you yeah. look at the foyers, it's all blanked out. You, you don't actually know what's in these substances. Um, but anyway, Moderna pushing this mRNA, biotech, BioNTech, Pfizer, BioNTech, this very flawed technology that doesn't clearly work, isn't safe, isn't effective, is now being rolled out for the, all the new generation of vaccines for new treatment. And the, I find this ridiculous for the treatment of, for example, myocarditis. Insane. So we're Insanity. gonna so something that's caused the myocarditis is now going. We're going to use the same thing to treat it. I mean, you could make this stuff up. This Frankenstein monster, and we're now going to inject it into all our livestock and crops. We're playing God. 
We are, and and, and it's very are. dangerous. And I just what what is going on? The mad, the world has gone mad. It it has gone completely mad. I I say that I'm the most proudly unvaccinated doctor in America, not because I don't believe in vaccines as we once thought them off, but because the last three years has taught me so much. And but aren't I you skeptical right now? Aren't you I'm, skeptical now? Of I will other not vaccines? take any mRNA product. I know, but I what I'm saying is those other. Ever. The yeah. other traditional vaccines. Yeah, haven't you I, looked I was into that? I'm skeptical of some of them, like you, about flu, for instance, which I'd already thought of declining the flu vaccine. In fact, I may decline it this year. It's something that I have got every year in the US for 15 years. I've never had any issues with it. And it's funny, the last couple of years I've got it, I've asked the injector, because nurses come around the hospital, I look at the vial before. I just want to make sure that they haven't made a mistake. That's the vaccine I'm thinking of. Under no circumstances. So I'm I'm further down I'm further down I the just, line. I'm, I'm thinking of refusing it next time. You're yeah, thinking sure. well now yeah. they're going com combined and what do you what they don't work. They, they don't. I mean it's more just and I will admit laziness so my so I just tell me every single year. So tell me yeah. when you have children you don't have children, do you? Not yet, no. When you have children, will you have them uh, go through the schedule? Good question. So for, when I have children I will not use the U.S. schedule anyway. I would go for the U.K. or there's a couple of other countries in Europe. Whether or not I get every single vaccine, I can't. I, I don't. Can you I, do I me a favor? I will, but I will. Some of them, measles, for instance, um, rubella. I'd encourage you to I read. Got, I'd encourage you to read the book. Um, turtles all the way down. And the other thing is, a lot of people don't realize the vaccines that we had are not the same vaccines. Different companies. Well, that's what I was going to touch on. I would t trust the ones that I had back in the day. The ones now, I'll certainly research when that time comes. I uh, think you should. And you don't have mandates here in the UK either, but in the US, it is mandated to go to school to get the childhood vaccines. It's outrageous, but yeah, it's, it's different over there. Wow. They were actually trying to mandate the COVID vaccines for kids. The, the US was on a whole different level to trying to force these products onto people. And you have to ask yourself why a country which doesn't even give its citizens basic health care is suddenly doing this. We know the reason why. Money, so, money, money. So, but this is what I'm trying to say. So even the childhood vaccine is just guaranteed income stream as far as I'm concerned. It's the holy, it's a sacred cow that you can't challenge. So if it was really about health and wellness and they wanted their population to be healthy, they would mandate against these Big food, ultra processed exactly. companies. That they would, the first thing, they would yeah. get rid of the sugar content, the seed oils. They would get the population fit and healthy. They would, they would really take care. Of it. It's so simple. If I was, a, if I was a, the leader of the nation, within a day, I could do more good for this country than the last fifty years that these politicians have done. And because it's not hard, could, yeah. the truth is so simple. Um. So when they push and say that actually it's you have to take this vaccine. So over here, you can't get an appointment to see a, a, a general practitioner for like weeks. You have to wait for ages. You know, no one's interested in your illness or your health, but they will have an appointment for you to get your vaccine. They've got the resources to give you the vaccines, which are which we pay billions of pounds for. These things are not cheap. So we have billions of pounds for vaccines of which the safety and efficacy has never been truly tested. A lot of the studies are comparing a newer generation of vaccine with an older generation of vaccine. Never a, a true placebo control group. The studies are flawed. 
And like I said, it's a sacred cow. You cannot touch yeah, this I, subject. I don't agree either with having a sacred cow and something you can't trust. And yeah, our priorities are lopsided. Like I, I have family members here who had the same thing. They were getting multiple text messages for the COVID vaccine, but yet you discover a lump and it will take you weeks to be seen and get a biopsy. Exactly, It's, it's complete rubbish. I, I will say this, that I think I, I've read a little bit and I would be happy for you to introduce me to more text on this. But in terms of the influence of vaccines in improving human longevity, I do think that it's way less than people think. So if we take the last 150 years and you take out of the three things which have vastly improved human life expectancy, public sanitation, antibiotics, and vaccines, for me, vaccines would be last in that list. Public sanitation and antibiotics revolutionized the world much more than vaccines have. Yeah. So what do you think is the future? How do we get out of this mess? Um, you know, we're in a, we're in a pickle. <laughs> a pickle. We're, yeah, we're, so we're, we're in a... Understatement. Yeah, we're... Yeah. We've got problems. I mean, you, we talk, you talked about clowns and clown several times. I, I think that's a really good description. I think everyone is a clown who's at the top now. They're all compromised or captured. We live in a clown world where, you know, women can have penises and men can lactate. And, you know, it's just Which crazy. It's also driven by money in the U.S. So it's, it's driven by money it. here. You've had them shut down a little bit here, but in the U.S. this is exploding and it's so disgusting. It, it's an take industry. Take the money away. It's an industry. No, I mean, how could we even, could we have imagined, seriously, Ahmed, talking about gender reassignment and mutilating body parts of children when we were in medical school? No. Uh, and, and this is, you're not even allowed to say it in the U.S. I mean, I'll say it, I don't care, but I think that this is abhorrent. I mean, Aside from maybe an extreme circumstance where there's some confusion over what a body part looks like and someone needs it, but you should not be performing any gender transition on anyone under the age of 18. And isn't it funny how we've come full circle? I know we're going slightly off topic here, but 60 years ago, if you had these questions as a teenager in the UK or US, you would be forced to have hormonal therapy and other things if you were questioning you know, your identity. They did it the other way around. But now they've pushed it towards you have to change yourself. You have to change your body. And these surgery centers and, and endocrinologists, hormone specialists in the U.S., because basically Therapist, someone who does that psychologist, is a yeah. lifelong customer of medicine, which in the U.S. Is, is all that this is about. And I don't even know how we get going back to a broader point of uh, food supply, pushing therapeutics. It is so ingrained in the culture right now. I personally think we need a leader to come to power who will completely gut the system. As far as the U.S. goes, the CDC and FDA should be defunded, disbanded. We need to start afresh. We need to fire every single one of our current leaders, preferably ban them from holding any position ever again in public health. We need to gut the system. And in the meantime, what we need to do is keep raising awareness, keep on telling people what they should be focused on. And I think there is a massive audience out there that is very receptive to this message and wants to hear it because who wants to be sick? Who wants to be fat? Who wants to be on drugs? But they just need more guidance. And this is where the medical profession, which has abandoned its duty over the last three years, firstly to, to reassure when the public needed reassurance, to focus on what was needed to be ethical, to, to not just sit by when these coercive mandates were put in place. I mean, you've probably seen the same thing. I've seen terrible instances of, pregnant uh, 
pregnant women I work with come to me in tears and say, I don't want this vaccine. I've had COVID. Please, what should I do? And why are you even in that position? And why are doctors sitting by? I mean, what an abandonment of our basic duty. And we can't forget, I know we talked about this in the Twitter space, I don't think there can be any forgiveness for what's happening. I, I agree. The same people mm-hmm. are still there. We have to just push forward, hope that we get a receptive audience, hope that people realize that they don't have to go down this route that the establishment is pushing them down. But Sunil, it's even darker than that. The people who pushed it are now standing back and saying, oh, we were misled ourselves and oh, we didn't know any better and we were just following the science. This is a lie. This is just, this is absolute nonsense. You know, the same people that created the censorship, who humiliated and denigrated and pushed on it, pushed the, 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 this vaccination uh, gene therapy on us, created the misery of lockdowns and uh, pointing fingers at different people and saying, oh, we had nothing to do with it. And, and they're now saying, we need to investigate and see how we can how we can change things and oh how we can make sure the same people who started it and and i knew this would happen i knew they would just all navel gaze pass on the blame to someone else keep their positions and go back to the way things were and then we'll 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 be in the same situation a few years time again i i've got no doubt in my head they will they'll pull out another pandemic and without any doubt another gene therapy they've made too much money too much and they've also seen how realize now a new way to do it utilizing the power of social media they're just waiting in the wings this was an experiment on how they could manipulate us and how far they could push us and i know you said we need a a change in leader i i agree but i kind of disagree i mean the whole reason why i'm doing this podcast is i want to empower people i want everyone to be self-empowered to be sovereign not to look to other leaders and saviors but to save themselves. Because the reality is, if enough people were like you, Sunil, none of this would have happened. You know, it's the fact that the population is weak, sick, unhealthy, mentally fragile, you know, um, not critically thinking, not empowered, that they were so, and they're divided. You know, society is divided. Love thy neighbor. You know, we need to love ourselves and our fellow man and woman but we've been divided we don't know most of our neighbors we don't we don't talk to anyone we're fearful of others just distrust that's what's constantly pumped out in the media all these horrible people out there so we we've lost our communities we've lost our love for fellow man and woman and i think that's the problem we need to sort ourselves out so that we can't be manipulated and fall into this trap again yeah, it can't true. just be oh we need someone to come and save us everyone needs to save themselves and that's how we stop this nonsense from happening again anyway is there anything else we haven't covered that you want to talk about no i think we've been we've going through we've everything. been going strong yeah, for two hours absolutely what a great discussion covered so many things and uh, i hope uh, everyone listening has food for thought no pun intended And can take away from this some important points and, uh, of course, get back to us with any any questions you have about specific topics. But, yeah, we've we've covered an awful lot of topics there, Ahmed. So what's the future for you? You're 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 getting married. I am. Yes. Later this year. Are you excited? I'm very excited. Yeah. It's a a full time job, but uh, all, all good. 
And uh, yeah, let's see what comes after that. But uh, I'm sure I will continue to focus on the career side, uh, on lifestyle medicine, metabolic health. I still like working in the hospital. I think acute care medicine. And uh, I want to stress again, I mean, there's many good things, although a lot of my message is that modern mainstream medicine has gone completely the wrong way. I think medical education, physicians, philosophy of practice, completely heading in the wrong way right now. There are good things about modern day practice and, and things that we can do in the medical field, uh, but we have lost touch with some very fundamental values. 100%. And are you going to to do anything different from your practice? Have you got a YouTube channel? I know you've got an Instagram account, Twitter account. Are you, are you going to try and promote health on any kind of platform or do they find you in clinic? I mean, can you just tell me where people can find you and, you know, and your, your tags? Yeah, absolutely. So my, my Twitter tag, which is where myself and Ahmed have mainly communicated, is at Dr. Sunil Dand. Very how, easy to find. How would you spell that? So Dr. D-R and then my name, S-U-N-E-E-L-D-H-A-N-D, at Dr. Sunil Dand. And I'm also active on different social media platforms. YouTube is one of the biggest ones right now. I put out regular videos at least usually a couple of times a week. I also have an uncensored platform. Is that the same channel name? Uh, yes, it is Dr. Sunil Dand. I have an uncensored platform on a platform called Locals, which recently has merged with Rumble, and it is not subject to the same awful censorship that YouTube has been on. We didn't get into all the YouTube censorship that I faced, but it was uh, oh. along the same lines of, of the same people wanting to suppress free speech. So you can find me on Locals. I also have an online academy, and I've created an online course which focuses on real health, wellness, all of these topics where I'm giving you lectures, quizzes. You can Google Dr. Dand Academy and find that. I uh, lastly also do one-on-one -on -one consultations uh, when I have time. My time is somewhat restricted, but all of that can be found via my website. So I hope some of you who, who liked what you heard can, can get in touch with me. Oh, I realized there was one more thing I didn't talk about. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, something important. What's your take on supplements? Oh, supplements. That's a, a great question. I do get asked about that a lot. I think that if you're having a healthy, well-balanced diet, you generally shouldn't need supplements. But having said that, a lot of people do use supplements. So I can tell you myself, I, I use a few now. I'm not a fan of taking anything every day. I don't like the psychological thought of taking a pill every day. That doesn't sit well with me. But the supplements that I will take, so vitamin D in the winter, I take that uh, maybe three or four times a week. Um, that is a, a huge problem right now, uh, vitamin D deficiency, especially in darker-skinned individuals. But nowadays in colder climates, even mm. lighter-skinned individuals suffer this. Vitamin D is crucial not just for bones but also immune health. So I'll take... 1,000 to 2,000 units, maybe three, four times a week during the winter. Um, other supplements that I would vouch for, turmeric, I think is an excellent supplement. Uh, anti-inflammatory. Anti-inflammatory effects. They did some fascinating studies actually with COVID uh, virus in it, neutralizing the COVID virus. So I would vouch for a, a turmeric supplement if you can't get that in your diet. Uh, fish oil capsules can be very good. You can good source of omega-3s if you can't get that through your diet. A multivitamin, I mean, the, the um, I would say the evidence on that isn't overwhelming, but probably doesn't do you any harm either if people want to take that. Um, garlic, uh, there, there's lots of them that um, some people experience benefits for. I'd say the only one that I will take is uh, vitamin D, and then I try to get the rest through my, through my diet. 
Excellent. What's your take on that? And um, oh, I will do that another day. And the other <laughs> thing as well is we didn't even touch about diets. And I mean, there's so much out there, especially amongst health influencers. You know, should you be vegan? Should you be carnivore, keto, low carb, plant based? Uh, <laughs> it just goes on and on. There's there's just omnivore, carnivore. It just there's so much information. I think for a lot of people, it's very difficult to figure out what is true, what is correct, what is wrong. What is the right way? Um, but I think we can we can always do that another day. So Neil, look listen, forward to that. Thank you so much. It's been great having you here. And um, yeah, until next time, I think we were definitely going to have this kind of conversation again. So thank you so much. We will. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.